This is the Faith Debate, a theological roundtable gab fest, a free-for-all forum with faith community leaders wrestling over the truth. In less than one half hour, learn more about what really matters than what most others learn in a week. The Faith Debate is on the World Wide Web at WFMD.com, keyword faith. Are you ready for the clash of ideas? Are you ready for the sound of freedom? Let's get ready to rumble in this corner, weighing in with the Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary, the Faith Debate Master of Ceremonies, oh, yeah. <laughs> Troy Skinner. At the church that I pastor, over recent months anyway, had some interesting questions thrown our way. We decided to tackle them in kind of a, a study format, a group discussion study format with some lessons uh, from the scriptures to help us understand how to answer these questions. And one of the questions was, are there ghosts or if there are ghosts, what exactly are they or aren't they? Or what does the Bible say about ghosts? Should we believe in ghosts? Should Christians who you know hold their Bibles near and dear you know, think that there are ghosts, or you know, what should they think about it? That was an interesting question, and so we're we're going to tackle that question this week on the faith debate. So this is something that uh, that we did as a church, the Household of Faith in Christ. If you're interested in what we do, you can find our website, Household of Faith in Christ. Dot com. Uh, not to keep you from going to WFMD.com and going to the Faith Debate page, but there's a whole bunch of stuff beyond what you find on the Faith Debate page at HouseholdOfFaithInChrist.com as well. So anyway, if you've always wanted to know what the heck does the Bible say about ghosts anyway, this is your week. Enjoy. So we've had a couple of uh, what would almost strike you as out of left field kinds of topics suggested a few weeks ago. Would Jesus wear a mask? It uh, doesn't sound like a theological or biblical question, but it actually proved to be rather profound, and I think it was a good discussion and uh, a good lesson. And are there such things as ghosts can sound like a silly kind of a question, but it's really not. And it's the kind of question that people have on their minds, and the Bible does speak to these sorts of things. And so we should, we should know what the Bible, what God's Word has to say about these sorts of things. So what does the Bible say about ghosts? Well, it does say some things, but it borders on virtually nothing. There's not a whole lot about ghosts in the way that we think about ghosts in our culture. Certainly there's a lot about the ghost in the sense of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, um, but there's actually different words uh, in the original biblical language there, which I'll touch on uh, in a minute. So, But there are uh, a few references in the Bible, in the New Testament, um, we find the Disciples of Christ thinking that Jesus was a ghost. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, it says, When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. And in Luke 24, 39, it's Jesus talking here, and he says, Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. So there's two examples where the word ghost is used. And Jesus himself is one of the people talking. Now, the whole word, you could say, is, is Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the Son. The Son is the Word. Jesus is the Word. And so the whole Bible is the Word of God speaking to us. But even uh, in his uh, incarnation, Jesus doesn't deny the existence of ghosts. Uh, in this passage, he doesn't say much about him other than to simply say that he wasn't one. <laughs> So we have a negative. We know that in that particular moment in time, Jesus wasn't a ghost. But what are they? 
The Greek word that's used here in these two verses I read, by the way, is uh, the, the word, uh, we would pronounce it uh, phantasma, and the Greek, the emphasis would be early on, be phantasma, uh, which means appearance, uh, an, an apparition, some sort of a, a specter. Uh, the different word than uh, uh, pneuma, which is uh, the New Testament word for spirit, so uh, they're not interchangeable. We have a tendency sometimes when we think Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, that ghost and spirit can be interchangeable, but not in the Greek. So Jesus does not say, look at me, touch me, because uh, I'm, I'm a spirit. He's saying I'm not a ghost. Um, so there's some distinction there. Um, but all this does really is moves the question for us. Okay, so if a ghost, a, a phantasma, a phantasma uh, is an appearance, an apparition, a specter, okay, so what is the appearance? What is the apparition? What is the specter? We've just moved the question. Well, maybe we get some insight from what is perhaps the best-known ghost story, maybe ever, but certainly the best-known ghost story in the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament, where the uh, witch of Endor is contacted by King Saul to summon the prophet Samuel from the dead. So that's what I referenced at the very beginning here. So if you, if you have your Bibles ready... You're listening to The Faith Debate on News Radio 930 WFMD and 99.9 HD2 and online at WFMD.com. It has caused quite a bit of head scratching over the years for a lot of people because, I mean, it's within the biblical canon. This is the inspired word of God, which elsewhere condemns the kind of things that this woman in Endor was doing. It condemns necromancy, wizardry spiritualist activity like that. You can find those condemnations in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't have to mean that we have an unsolvable problem. There are questions galore about a passage like this, to be sure, but there is an answer. Now, the first question that will often come to mind when grappling with this, if you pick up your Bible, you're working through, you're reading your Bible in a year, and you come upon this passage, and you're like, Okay, let me try to make sense of this. And I think an instinct for a lot of us, the first thing we want to do is say, well, was it really Samuel? Maybe it wasn't Samuel. Maybe it was just, it appeared to be Samuel. So maybe Samuel didn't actually come and visit from the dead. Maybe that's a way to explain it. So, well, what does the text say? I mean, let's start pretty basically with what, does, what do the actual words in the story say? I think a fair plain reading of the text, taking it at face value, taking it for what the words actually are, the text says that a dead Samuel spoke to Saul. That's what the text says. It says oh. that Samuel said to Saul. Earlier it talked about how Samuel was dead. <laughs> oh. It went out of the way to talk about how they mourned him. He was. It wasn't like he was Kind of, sort of dead. He was dead, dead. He was really dead. And yet here he is speaking, and it says it multiple times. Samuel said, Samuel said. So the text would indicate Samuel, dead Samuel, spoke to an alive Saul. That's what it says. But it doesn't tell us how. How did that happen? What, what was going on there? And did this woman... And the text really have 
powers to raise Samuel from the dead? Did she conjure him up? Did they organize a seance and, and she put her fingers on the crystal ball and all of a sudden the table shifted and, and Samuel rises up out of the ground? Well, reading the narrative, and Dina did a good job reading it, so I don't think you could help but notice that the woman, she seems to be out of, she's as surprised as anybody when Samuel shows up. She cries out in a loud voice. She, she screams, okay? Ah! It's a ghost! <laughs> so, this would seem to suggest at least a little bit that perhaps in the past, when she was asked to do things like this, that whatever results she got were mere fakery. Because when it actually happens, she freaks out. She is shocked out of her skin. Oh, Something actually happened. She can't believe it almost. So again, if we take the words of the story at face value, it is fair to say that Samuel, the prophet, is actually appearing from the dead and the woman had nothing to do with making this happen. So what does that mean? Who did it? Did Samuel raise himself from the dead? Oh. I mean, who has the power to do this. Ooh, ooh, me, me. <laughs> God can do this. God has the power to do this. God can bring Samuel back and have Samuel speak to Saul. This is well within God's power. Do you believe that? I, I would hope, if you, if, at least if you're a Christian, I would hope you believe that. You have to believe that because Christians who trust their Bibles believe that God can do this. Because if we don't believe that he can do this, then we've got a real problem with Moses and Elijah coming back from the dead to speak to Jesus at the transfiguration. So if he could do it there, he could do it here. And Christians must believe that God has this power. And if we don't believe that God can bring somebody back from the dead, what is the Christian faith all about anyway? I think it's important, I don't want to pass over this, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it either because it's not really what the passage is about, right? 1 Samuel 28 is not about witches and weirdness. That's not the point. That's not why this is here. People will turn to it and it's fun to grapple with, okay, what's going on? What is that apparition? Who made that happen? Was it really Samuel? That's all interesting and it's helpful uh, in understanding what the true point and purpose of this chapter in the Bible is, but what is it really about? If it's not about the occult and hobgoblins, if that's not the main point here, what is the main point? Well, I would suggest that this chapter in the Bible is about three things, mainly. The first one, the first lesson that the Bible student reading this passage of God's Word should take is that if you reject God's Word, God will take his word away from you. Notice that Samuel, at the time of the attempted conjuring of the dead by the, the woman in Endor, at this time, uh, the, the writer is telling us some information, and he's saying that God's mouthpiece, Samuel is a prophet of God, he's proclaiming God's word, he is God's mouthpiece to the previous generation and to Saul, by the way, by, by uh, uh, extension, and perhaps even in particular. So God's word, God's spokesperson, Samuel, 
is dead. The writer of this passage wants the reader to understand that God's spokesperson to God's people generally and to Saul specifically is dead. And the voice of God is now seemingly being sought by Saul, but he can't get a word from God. The word is gone. He's no longer there. Am I emphasizing this enough? (laughs) Saul has no access to the direct word of God. Now, without Samuel, he could still have access through other means that would be biblical and scriptural or examples of them. Like, it's possible that dreams would be a way that Saul could, could, could hear directly from God, but he can't force God to speak to him in dreams. We can't force God to speak to us in dreams. The, uh, the Urim and Thummim, what the Urim is, is mentioned in the passage that the Dina read a moment ago. So that'd be a possibility, right? That's a way of discerning God's will, hearing God's word in a situation, kind of a binary choice. Should we go left or right? Let's let's go to the high priest and find out. Except Paul had no access to the uh, to the Urim and Thummim because uh, Abiathar, the, the, the only survivor of the slaughter of the priests, wasn't with Saul. He was with David. And so Saul can't count on dreams. He can't count on going to the priests. So he has to resort, or at least he feels like, he has to resort to other methods. Saul has no access to the word of God. Why? Because he had rejected the word of God. He had rejected Samuel's prophecy earlier, which is alluded to in the story. And so God withdraws, and now Saul is afraid. The Philistines are coming. The Philistines are coming. And he needs guidance. He doesn't know what to do, but God is silent. God doesn't speak to Saul. And so what's a king to do? Well, what's happened here is that God has given Saul over to his reprobate mind. He has turned him over to himself. He has hardened his heart. And when the Bible talks about God hardening someone's heart, all he's doing is, is, is removing his hand of grace because our hearts are naturally hardening on our own. So all God has to do is remove his hand of sustaining grace and our hearts will harden. So he didn't make Saul's heart hard. He allowed Saul's heart to go where the natural inclination of his heart was. And his heart was hardened and he's turned over to his own imaginations, his own sinful mind. And he did this because Saul exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we know that he continued in this exchange, continued down this path, because what does he do? He goes to see a witch. Now, in fairness, well, maybe he didn't know it was wrong. Maybe Saul didn't know what he was he doing. Has, he put a law. Exactly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so he can't go to a prophet. He can't go to God's word because God isn't speaking to him, right? So he has no access to the truth. And Saul's life has become a lie. This is News Radio 930 WFMD. You're listening to the Faith Faith Debate. We're also on HD2 of 99.9 FM and online at WFMD.com. All the mediums, all the all the witches and warlocks. He casts them out. He knows that it's wrong, and yet he goes to seek one out anyway. The disguise is absolutely a tip-off that he's ashamed and he's hiding and stuff, but there's even more going on uh, there. So anyway, so Saul provides us a lesson of what happens when God removes his word. When God removes his voice, if you reject God's word, then it's taken away from you. And that's part of what this passage is teaching.
Now, it also teaches that if you reject God, all you have left is Satan. Right? That's your choice. If you don't want God, you're going to have the God of this world. You're going to have Satan. That's all you're left with. <laughs> Saul has believed a lie. He's believed the lie. Well, who tells lies? Who's the father of lies? Who is the liar? Satan is the liar. He is a liar from the very beginning all the way back to the book of Genesis. So, again, he knows the truth. He knows he shouldn't be consulting with witches. Saul does. And there's great irony and hypocrisy in that, as we talked about. Um, It's the path of the evil one that he's marching down, showing that he is left with only Satan. And as Dina said, he puts on a disguise, he hides, he disguises himself. Who else disguises himself and masquerades as something that he's not? The enemy, the accuser, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, right? All these, (laughs) the dragon. He's a great deceiver who lies and hides and disguises himself. So Saul is taking on the character of the one to whom now he's really following after. He's not following after God, he's following after Satan. And he starts to take on the the image. He becomes an image bearer, in a sense, of, of Satan. Now I want you to notice when Samuel appears, he appears to the woman... Rather than Saul, did you pick up on that? The woman describes to Saul what she's seeing. Saul asks him, what do you see? The woman sees Samuel, but Saul doesn't see Samuel. Again, emphasizing the fact that God's word has been removed from Saul. So he'll show up and speak where the woman can see, but not Saul, at least not initially. And when Samuel talks... Think about this now, what I said at the very beginning of this lesson. When Samuel talks, who is it that's speaking? I mean, it's Samuel, I guess, in a sense, but as a representative, he's speaking God's word. And so it's interesting that Saul is seeking after a word from God. He wants a word from God. He's been cut off from the word of God because he had rejected God's word and it's been taken from him. And now he's trying to find some evil, nefarious way to get it. And, and so God, in the text, this is the, the Troy paraphrase, God says, okay, Saul, fine. You wanted a word from God? I'll give you a word from God. And what is that word? What does Samuel say to Saul in this chapter? The word is exactly what it was before. God has abandoned you. God has forsaken you. So you wanted a word? Let me add for emphasis the last word you had heard from me. I'm turning you over to yourself. I'm turning you over to Satan. You get no more word from me. That's the third thing that's going on here. If if you reject God, he will reject you. You reject his word, he takes it away from you. You reject him, he, he, he takes himself away from you. So this chapter is really not about witches and the spirit world and seances. It's about a guy who happened to be a king who rejects God and believes a lie and tries to go around God to hear from God. How ironic. He wants to go around God so he can hear from God. (laughs) And God supernaturally does what only God can do. 
he puts forward the the uh, now dead prophet Samuel to give him an echo of what he had already heard from him before. And I think it's important for us as believers to recognize that what's being described here with Samuel, it is it is not normative. This is not typical. This is an unusual happening. And it's definitely not a nod to the occult. This is not scripture encouraging us mm. to go find somebody that can hope to conjure up a dead person for us. And so with that in mind, I think it helps us to see that ghosts, whatever we think they might be, if you should happen to see a ghost, you should understand that they are not disembodied spirits of dead people who are wandering aimlessly, like they're trapped between one phase of, of life and another phase of life. You know, there's so many times our, our stories, a lot of, you know, horror movies and stuff, the haunted houses, it's about somebody died in that house 300 years ago, and they can't go to live happily ever after into the spirit world until they solve some last conundrum in their physical life while they walk to the earth. Like, that's not what ghosts are. Certainly that's not the biblical example idea of what ghosts are. But the Bible does indicate that there are ghosts, there are apparitions, there, there, there is this spirit realm that's out there. So if you have a visitation from something you might call a ghost, what are you to consider that it is? Because we know this, when somebody dies, they don't haunt the, the planet as a ghost. We know that's not true. And we know that they don't get turned into chubby little, uh, you know, fat guys with bones and arrows and, and float on wings and look like Cupid. We know that that's not what happens. We talked about what happens when somebody dies actually a couple weeks back, and so we're not going to belabor that. So, but if you do see something, because the spirit world is real, there's a spiritual war going on. Satan and the, and, and the demons, they are, they are real, and angels are real. Um, so what are we seeing? Well, I would suggest that if you happen to have a non-normative occurrence happening, and maybe God could theoretically want to speak to you through somebody who has died, I would really check myself to make sure that's what I was experiencing. Um, but we know from chapter 28 of 1 Samuel that that's on the table as a possibility. That could happen, although I'd be nervous that if that was happening, that it might be for similar reasons to what was going on with Saul. <laughs> He's sending somebody to speak to you a word that you already had as evidence that you had rejected him. Um, it could be the deceiver himself masquerading or one of his minions uh, bringing upon you a visitation from the dark side of the spirit world. It could be an angelic visitation. Uh, it could be some sort of an apparition in, in, a, in a spiritual sense uh, of, of, of God himself, maybe Christ appearing in like maybe a vision. That may be closer to a dream, but uh, I think that sometimes people might see what they think is a ghost, and really it's, it's not anything like what we just read and talked about here, but it's more of a, of, of a vision that God gives someone. So there's a variety of options, but I, whatever the options are, it's not your great-great-great-great-grandmother uh, haunting you know, the place where she died. That's, we, the Bible does not support that sort of an idea. So I hope that this uh, episode of the Faith Debate was helpful to you. What in the heck are ghosts anyway, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and, and what should uh, biblically informed Christians think about that? Uh, if if you want to 
catch this in its entirety. If you joined us late, you can find the podcast at WFMD.com. You can go to the Faith Debate page or the Audio Vault page of the website to find the podcast for this show. You can also find links to this uh, show, podcast, on the Facebook page. Usually give it, you know, a few hours, sometimes 24 hours to get up there, but it might be up by later today. And you can find stuff on my personal social media as well. I'm on MeWe, Gab, Parlor. Uh, and also Facebook, of course, uh, for, for now, with video podcasts and audio podcasts, uh, certainly doing that. And I've got a website now that you can find stuff and keep track of what I'm up to with me and my church, Household of Faith in Christ, householdoffaithinchrist.com. Till next week, 167 and a half hours from right now. God bless. <laughs>